like a son of God who has inherited a kingdom that will never end. And I start to live for eternal things, and I start to look for Christ, to Christ more and more as my source of joy. And it no longer becomes about myself. It becomes about glorifying the Son. Our Western Christianity is a very self-centered Christianity. A very self-centered Christianity. And I would dare say in God's sight, he's a gracious, merciful God, but it's a disgrace. You know why? Because I'm not the center of the gospel. Jesus Christ is the center of the gospel. And if I go to Jesus Christ with the thought that I'm going to you just to make me happy, just to enhance my life, I'm sorely mistaken. Now, is that true? Does Christ want to satisfy us? The answer is yes. Can anybody satisfy us like Jesus? The answer is no. But in our hearts and our minds, we've got a lot of lies that say otherwise. And we act upon those lies every day, unfortunately. But the reality is, Jesus Christ invites us to get on a cross. He invites us to deny ourselves so that we follow him and his desires instead of our flesh and instead of the world and instead of the prince of the power of the air, we're led by the Son of God who's always doing good things and always has something special for us every single day. It's a Christ-centered gospel that does not revolve around my feelings or around my comfort. I am willing to deny my comfort. I'm willing to lay down my emotions for the sake of of Christ accomplishing his purposes through me. That's why people go into all the earth and they allow themselves, if necessary, to die for the gospel. They give their lives. Why is Jesus Christ worthy of all our devotion? And why even think about that? Why even focus of all the things that we could talk about? Why are we going to talk about Jesus Christ and knowing him more Ephesians 4.13, the latter half of it says, We are to attain unity in the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to maturity, to maturity, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Paul speaks to the church and he says, I want to see you get mature. I want to see you come to the full stature, the masterpiece that God created you to be. And I want that to be your aim. I want that to be your focus. And in order to come to that place of maturity, we have to know who Christ is. If we do not press in and devote ourselves to know who he is, we're going to stay adolescents. In the Greek, there are three different words for sons. The one referring to maturity is huias. That's a mature son. When you're a mature son, your father brings you into his business, and he entrusts you with things. When you're a tech now, when you're a little child, you don't have the responsibilities. You don't walk in the authority. You don't know how to operate in the power of the things that your father's doing. But when you make it your aim to go to maturity and go against this world, then you have the opportunity to come, what does it say? To the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So we need to know him. We need to know him more. And, and if you would 
I'm going to share with you a dream. This was the first prophetic dream I've ever had uh, when I was in college. In this dream, I was walking, and it was nighttime. I was on the grass, and looking up at the stars with somebody else on the sun, bam, I'm taken up to the heavens. I'm taken up to the heavens, and I start to revolve. I'm orbiting around the star, okay? I'm like the moon. I'm a satellite going around a star and looking at outer space. I look at the star, and all this radiant glory is emanating from it. And then I hear a voice. This voice says, I am Christ. I am the center of all things, and I am coming soon. And when I receive that, there is this ecstatic joy. There is this revelation of the beauty and the glory. That revelation that came in that dream, Christ is the center of all things. It came to me, the realization that everything, everything that was created, everything that is sustained, everything that is done, every person that exists on the face of this earth is for the glory of Christ. Ultimately, it is for His glory, for Him to manifest who He is. Who He is as righteous Lord, as Savior, as healer, as judge, as merciful King of kings and Lord of lords. There's a revelation that comes when we choose to make Christ the center of our lives. I look into my heart and I ask you to look into your heart. What's the center of your lives? What's the center of your heart? You know what? When Christ is not the center of our lives, I have the true vine. My father is a gardener. If you remain in me, you're going to have life coming. You're going to bear fruit. You're going to be pruned. If Christ is the center of my life, you know what happens? Everything else gets in line. The Bible says God has given us all good things to enjoy. All things to enjoy. He doesn't want us to be moping around. He, he, he created all this stuff for a purpose. But we can make idols out of it, and it'll hinder us. It's not working. We can just ignore that. There are great artists. There are great artists in this world. Picasso, Rembrandt, Monet. Um, I can go on and on with artists. And if you want to know the creativity and the power and the magnificence of an artist and their talent, you look at their artwork. You look at a painting, and this is God's painting, what we're going to look at here. The known universe. Yeah. The, the known universe, we, we have a, a telescope called the Hubble Telescope, and this has caught amazing images, and you're going to see reproductions of some of that stuff. The vastness of our solar system alone. Does anybody know how many Earths can fit in the sun? Million. 1. 1.3. 1.3 million. Yes. 1.3 million. You think, do you think that the Earth is big? There's the Earth, okay? 1.3 million Earths can fit in the sun. Okay? We are in the Milky Way galaxy. The Milky Way galaxy has... Billions of stars. Of course, our sun is a star. Our sun is a small star. Our sun is a very small star. There are billions of stars. Can Just you this back up, Bob? Yeah, I will back up more. Okay. Planet Earth. 
John 1 1. Genesis 1 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the Lord spoke. Let there be light, and there was light. God spoke through his word, and all that exists, seen and unseen, that has been created, through the voice, through the word of God, came into existence. The Gospel of John. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. Jesus Christ is the author, along with the Father, of creation itself. You would not exist if Jesus Christ did not create you. Nothing would exist if it were not for the Son of the Most High God. The Bible says in the beginning, in ancient times, you have the Father and the Son. The Greek word is logos. Logos. That means a couple things. One of that has to do with the, the divine order, divine structure. You see, all of these laws, all these principles that govern the universe, through Christ, all these things were established. All these things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. Okay, we're, we're going to talk a little bit about the vastness of the universe, which you measure in light years. Light years are, um, I'll have to get the lights back on when, when this is done to show you how, how crazy that the size of light years are. Um, you can turn the, the lights back on and keep the video going. Okay, so everything, everything that has been made was made through Christ. It was made with Christ. The vastness of creation, the vastness of creation as Clint said 1.3 million Earths can fit into the sun. The power of the sun is so great. We only get about a billionth of the power of the sun. Can you imagine if all of the power of the sun was directed towards this earth, what do you think would happen? It'd be destroyed in a second. That power is immense. The heat of the sun, 6,000 degrees. You get in the presence of that sun, what happens? You're done. The Bible says, magnify the Lord with me. Magnify the Lord with me. That word magnify has two different definitions. Number one is the biblical one, magnify, to exalt, to praise. The other definition of magnify, you look at a magnifying glass, there's a lens. You take something that's small, you look at it through the, the, the lens, and it looks bigger. That's not how we approach God. God is so great, and he's so otherworldly, it's more like a telescope, a Hubble telescope. There are things that you cannot see with the naked eye. They look like specks. The sun looks like the size of a tennis ball to us, the size of an orange. It's not because it is, it's because we're so far away from it. But you take a lens, you combine the right kind of lenses, and you get closer to that thing, and you see the brilliance, you see the glory of it, you see the hugeness of it, 
And that's what the Holy Spirit does for us. That's what the Word of God does for us. In the night sky, if I don't have all this light pollution around in the city, I can see 3,000 stars with the naked eye. 3,000 stars. You know how many stars I can see in the, the city? Barely any. You know, maybe it's dozens. Dozens of stars. Tell me, which is more powerful and bright, the stars or the fabricated light that's hindering me from seeing the stars? The stars. By how, I wonder how much time's brighter. Trillions, gazillions, whatever. If there's no comparison. We don't see the glory and the, the power, the greatness of Jesus Christ because like looking through all of the distraction, all of the encumbrance of the false light, it hinders us from seeing the stars for what they are. We get so consumed by the things of this world, so consumed by entertainment, so consumed by the flesh. We don't see things for what they are. It hinders us. It hinders us. The more we go into the Word of God by the power of the Holy Spirit, the more we're looking through a lens, we're looking through a telescope, and we're seeing the magnificence of Jesus Christ. I looked, I read through 1 Timothy this morning, I read through the book of Ephesians yesterday, before that I read through the book of Hebrews the previous day, before that I read through the book of 1 Corinthians. Why do you think that is? you think it's because I'm some legalist? Do you think it's because I think I have to please God, I have to read scripture? Or do you think I found some treasure? You think I found some treasure? I want to know who Christ is. And there's nothing more important to me. You look at my time. You look at how I spend my time. You want to take a look at my checkbook? You're going to see Christ. You, you hear the words that come out of my mouth? You want to live with me for a week? You know what you're going to see? You're going to see somebody who's going after God. You know why? Because there's nothing else worth going after. Ultimately, he's given us all the things to enjoy. But... Nothing can compare to Jesus Christ. Come on. Nothing whatsoever can compare. Okay, listen, listen. The scope of creation. The sun is so big that if you hollowed it out, it would hold 1,300,000 of our Earths. Pretty big. There's a star called Antares that is so big that if you hollowed it out, it would hold 64 million of our suns. That's pretty huge. That's astronomical. That's incomprehensible. How big and vast and glorious. How glorious are the celestial beings, the creation. The heavens declare the glory of God. That is the, the things that he spoke. He created Father and Son. All of it's created through him and for him. And it testifies to his glory. It testifies to his magnificence. Okay, a star in the constellation Hercules is so big that... If hollowed out, could hold 100 million entry stars. And the largest known star, Epsilon, is so big that if hollowed out, would hold several million Hercules stars, or 27 billion of our suns. 27 billion of our suns, each one that could hold 1,300,000 Earths. That's a, that's a lot, isn't it? That, that's incomprehensible. Okay, what does that make you think about God? What does that make you think about his power and his majesty and his authority? How does it make you feel about God? Does it, it should just make your mind expand. Your imagination should expand when you think of the vastness of creation. A light year is the distance that light can travel in a year. 
just under 6 trillion miles. That's a lot of miles. In the Milky Way galaxy, which we are a part of, we can estimate the number of stars in the galaxy is roughly 100 billion. 100 billion. Six days. God creates this stuff. 100 billion in our, own, our Milky Way galaxy. The most current estimates guess that there are 100 to 200 billion galaxies. 100 to 200 billion galaxies in the universe, each of which has hundreds of billions of stars. Can you, can you, it's unfathomable. The most distant space probe, we sent out a space probe named Voyager 33 years ago, um, was about 16 light hours away from Earth as of October 9, 2010. It took the space probe 33 years to cover that distance. And to get one light year, to, to go that far, it will take this space probe 18,000 years to reach one light year. <laughs> Latest estimates by astronomers tell us that the visible universe is 30 to 40 billion light years in diameter. And I've heard higher than that. 30 to 40 billion light years. Astronomical, incomprehensible figures. In layman's terms, that means it would take light, which travels at the speed of light, of course, 40 billion years to cross from one side of the universe to another. Okay. How big is Christ? How big is Jesus Christ? Let's go to Hebrews. Let's let that set down there. Okay. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 1. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers, to the prophets, at many, at many times, and in various ways, but in the last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things. All of creation, all of humanity, all of everything, Christ is the heir of it. He's the recipient of it. It's for him. For him, first and foremost. My life, my decisions are for him. And through whom he made the universe. Christ is so big and so glorious that all these billions of stars and billions of galaxies... He didn't have to do it. He did it because he's God. He's God. He's that big. He's eternal. He's infinite. He has no end. He, he has no limit to his energy or his power or his glory or his vastness. It took him no effort. He spoke a word, and it came. It came that fast, that easily. The sun is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being. You go in the Greek, and there's, there's a word, uh, hypostasis, if I'm saying that correctly, that literally means, he's saying, Jesus Christ is the exact representation of the Father's being. He's saying, every substance, every character, every attribute that the Father has, Christ is exactly that. You know what that means? That means he's fully God. He's everything that the Father is. Jesus Christ is. Everything that the Father is. What does it say after that? He sustains all things by his powerful word. Jesus Christ, seated in heavenly realms at the right hand of the Father, currently by the power of his word is sustaining everything that's going on. Everything that you do, whether God likes it or not, as far as the quality of your behavior, he is sustaining you, he's sustaining creation, he's sustaining all the order, all the billions and trillions and gazillions of stars. And how, how much effort do you think it's taking him? You think he's straining at that? All these trillions and billions of stars? I, I don't think that he is. And you know what? I, I think of Christ 
before he took on flesh. I think of his glory. I think he's God. He's, he's perfect. The joy that he has, the peace, the perfection, everything that he has. That blows me away. It overwhelms me when I think of the greatness of who he is. Well, he created this world with a lot of love. And God comes in Zaya. It's about six or seven hundred years before he comes. You see all these prophetic words. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And the government will be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Almighty God, the Everlasting Father. You jump to Isaiah 53, which says, He was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. You think the eternal God, Father and Son, Logos, Theos, together, forever, creates all this stuff. Adam blows it. Adam and Eve, they blow it. He created a perfect universe. He created a perfect, sinless world. God really values relationship. It's not just about doing the right thing. It's about relating. And he gave Adam and Eve a choice. He allowed the serpent to have influence. They chose to not believe the word of God. Shall you surely die? No, you're not going to die. You're going to know good and evil. Well, he, he was half right. They did know the difference between good and evil after they ate of the fruit. But they surely did die. The curse came upon this earth. The curse came upon them. And God says, from dust we made and dust we be. Sometimes our sins strike us right when we do them. Sometimes our sins travel for hundreds of years, whether it's before God, if we're not in Christ, or whether it's Adam and Eve, who hundreds of years later died. They didn't see the immediate consequence of their sin, but it came. And we do not blame God for evil. We do not blame God for the rebellion of Adam and Eve. But do you think God was surprised? The answer is no. God knows the end from the beginning. It says in Ephesians that we were predestined to be sons of God. To be in Christ before the foundation of the world. Before anything was made. Before all the stuff you saw was made. God had it in his mind for his son to be incarnate. To come into flesh and to be the savior of the world. God was not surprised one bit. God is able to keep trillions of stars and solar systems perfectly in order. He's able to keep this world in order right. as well. Revelations talks about the end. You know what? God's will is going to be done. Not yeah. Satan's, not sinful man's. God's will is going to be done. Jesus was born of a virgin. He did not have an earthly father. He did have an earthly mother. He came into this world to redeem that which was lost. God didn't have to do it. He chose to do it. He chose to do it. There are things that God does not delight in. The Bible says that God does not delight in the destruction of the wicked. It's according to his nature. Wrath is a part of God's character because he's just. And it's right to hate sin. It's right to hate compromise. And God hates it. And we should hate it too. Jesus Christ comes into this world and it's incomprehensible. The one through whom all things were made. He's the heir of all things. He takes on flesh, a baby. He's a baby and he's vulnerable. 
he's vulnerable and he enters into a world that doesn't understand him, that rejects him, that thinks he's only a man. God of heaven and earth, perfect God. I'm going to become a man and I'm going to live out the life of manhood so I can die on a cross and I can be rejected by the very people that in love I created. I love them so much. I'm going to experience life as a man and I'm not only going to die on a cross, but the far greater suffering than the physical on the cross was the wrath of the Father. He yells out, my Lord, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? My sin and your sin goes on the cross. God was sovereign in all of it. The mystery that people's wills were accomplished. Judas did what was his heart to do. The Pharisees had hard hearts. They twisted the revelation of God. They hated Christ. They did what was in their hearts to do. But God in his sovereignty is able to use all of it 100% to accomplish his will. On the cross, the most greatest and the most horrific act simultaneously. The ruthlessness and disgusting nature, the vileness of, of sinful men who choose darkness above light. But the love of God, who didn't deserve anything, dark, only deserved glory and honor, would humble himself to that extreme where he would let vile, sinful people put him on a cross and yell out to the Father, Father, forgive them for they know not what they are doing. That love to me is incomprehensible. What if somebody put you on a cross? What if somebody cut your tongue out because you were preaching the gospel? Would you have that kind of heart? You realize that's the heart of God. That's the heart of the Father. That sacrificial, loving giving, merciful, tender heart. There's no other way. There's no other way that he could redeem mankind. He tore him of a flesh. Now he's fully God and he's fully man. He suffers. He's tempted. He's in the wilderness 40 days and Satan comes. If thou be the Son of God, turn this rock into bread. Jesus was 40 days fasting. He was hungry. When you're fasting 40 days... You can barely move. You are weak. This analogy is a little silly, but I think it is appropriate. You've all seen Superman, I'm sure. Oftentimes he's Clark Kent, right? He does not use his superpowers. Jesus Christ lived and restricted his godhood while he was on this earth, and he depended on the Father. He said, it's not me that doeth the works, it's my Father in me. He was totally submissive. He sweated drops of blood in Gethsemane. And he said, Father, if it be thy will, let this cup pass me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. He suffered. He agonized. He was tempted in every way, Hebrews says, that we face temptation. Yet he overcame. Yet he was sinless and pure. He goes to the cross to redeem humanity and to establish a kingdom. Usually in this world all the time, kings are, are established through oppression, through exerting force, through exerting power, through taking over. Jesus establishes a kingdom through laying down his life and suffering. That's the Christian way of furthering the kingdom, not by lording it over, but by humbling yourself. Like Jesus Christ humbled himself. He for Sook his comforts, he forsook his dignity, he forsook everything that we would never want to forsake. 
out of love. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross and despising the shame. What was the object of his joy? You know what it was? That he might bring many brothers. and That was his joy. His joy is you. His joy is me. His joy is sharing his love and receiving his love from us. He became a high priest. The Bible says in Hebrews, he became a priest in the order of Melchizedek. In the Old Testament, there's a covenant with the Hebrews and God. And every year, the high priest went and offered blood of an animal to cover sins. Jesus Christ comes once and for all, the prophetic words of the new covenant. Over and over again, I will establish a new covenant, laws be written on your hearts. He lays his perfect blood down, sheds it on the cross, absorbs the wrath of God that we deserve. And three days later, he rises from the dead. And he's with the disciples. He has a glorified body. A glorified body. And he's teaching them. He's speaking to them. He's loving them. He's reinstating Peter. He's gracious. He's gracious. He's forgiving. And then he's out as a man. As a man. And the angel says, why are you looking up there? He's going to come back the same way he left. Where is he right now? Jesus, the high priest, took his blood, presented it at the throne of God. God said, that is acceptable. Jesus redeemed our lives. He took over this world. He took over the cosmos that Satan had a legal right over because, you know what? Adam and Eve were supposed to have dominion over creation. That's what the Bible says. But they forfeited because of their unbelief and their rebellion. Jesus Christ took that authority, legally took that authority through the perfect sacrifice and never sinning. So he has authority to open up the seven seals. He has authority to say, all of this is mine. And he has the authority to redeem a lost people and call those people his bride. And that's what he delights in. That's what he delights in. Struggle with pain. If you struggle with trials, anything, the Bible says, Jesus is our high priest. He is able to empathize. He's able to understand. He's not sitting on the throne judging you. No, he says, I understand. He was tempted in every way, so he was tempted with lust. He was tempted with hatred. He was tempted with everything, but he never gave in. He was able to resist. He's a human being in a glorified body who's also God at the right hand of the Father right now. And he is our high priest representing us to God. It says in Hebrews that the covenant that was established through his blood is an eternal covenant, once and for all. He remains a high priest forever. I can rest assured that if I am under the blood of Jesus, if I said yes to this new covenant, that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead, that he's the Son of God, you know what? I'm going to be secured by my high priest. It says he ever makes intercession for us. Not only is he speaking the word and holding the universe together, it sounds like a pretty big job. I wouldn't want it. Um, he is interceding to the Father on your behalf, on your behalf, on your behalf. He sees our struggles. He's interceding for us. So you see God is this beyond comprehension, imminent, glorious, powerful, magnificent 
King of kings and Lord of lords, but you also see the heart and the character and the sacrificial nature of Jesus Christ. What does Revelations say? What is he going to do? Think of glory. That word has a couple different meanings. One of those is weight. Another one of those is light. The Bible says that God dwells in inapproachable light. He is, he is set apart. And Jesus has authority to come back as judge. Right now we see a lot of wickedness happen. We see a lot of evil things happening in this world. People are getting raped. People are going hungry. People are abusing each other. They're being lied. First Corinthians is about he hasn't exercised all of his authority yet. He is going to come back the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is coming. You see it all throughout the Old Testament, the New Testament, the great and terrible day of the Lord. Psalms 2 says, Why do the nations so furiously rage together? Why do the people imagine a vain thing? They're wicked. God laughs them to scorn. God's above them. God's not scared of what anyone's going to do. He's coming back. And you know the description of this God-man? It says that his face shines with the glory of the sun. It says that he has his legs like a bronze of fire. It says that when he returns, people who have hated God and have loved their sin are going to cry out to the mountains, Fall on us! I'd rather have my brain smashed in than deal with the wrath of that person. Can you imagine the sun 6,000 6, degrees coming and singeing me? Okay? The glory and awesomeness of Jesus Christ when he returns on the white horse, out of his mouth comes the sharp double-edged sword. He is going to make war with his enemies. Hebrews says it has given man once to die and then the judgment. But you know what? There's another death after the judgment for those who are not in Christ. In Revelation, it says the liars, the murderers, the sexual, sexually immoral people, the idolaters, they're going to the lake of fire. The lake of fire is prepared for Satan and his demons. Jesus Christ, when he returns, he's going to annihilate sin. He's annihilating it. Anything that causes wickedness is out. It will not be a part of the new creation. In Psalms, and it's reflected again in Hebrews, there's going to be a new heavens and a new earth. You know what it says that Jesus is going to do? You know, just, just pretend this is a robe. You saw the billions of stars. You saw that on the, the image there. The billions of stars. The billions of the galaxies. It says that he's going to take it like a robe. Fold it. That's what he's going to do. That's what he's the world, the heavens, everything. He's just going to fold it. It's gone. That fast. Nobody realizes. I shouldn't say nobody, but I should say the world at large does not realize what they have waiting for them. And I think about hell. I think about it seriously. I think about torment. Have you ever been burned? Have you ever been sick? Have you ever... Um, and anything like that happen to you, okay, imagine your whole body in fire and you cannot get out ever. That's just. That's not a wicked thing for God to do. Our gospel is two-man centered. But that is what's going to happen to those people. Their souls are going. They're going to the lake of fire if they do not receive the grace of the cross. Jesus Christ loves us and he loves the lost beyond anyone's comprehension. There are times when God gives me a burden 
when, when I can feel his pain and I weep. I weep over the enormity of the love and the grace and the pain that he has over the lost. So, why is Jesus Christ worthy of all our devotion? I, I hope I threw out some points that really went into your heart. There's a story. What does it look like to have a, a life devoted to Jesus? In Africa, Heidi Baker has a ministry and there are various pastors associated with her. This pastor, he went into a village that was unreached. He went into a village that was unreached. Why did he go? To go there to um, be entertained? No. There because he had a treasure in an earthen vessel. And if these people don't hear it, they're going to go to hell for eternity. And God does not want that. He went not thinking about himself. He counted the cost. I might die. I might die if I go to this village. He doesn't know what's going to happen. But he goes there. 2,000 people about in that village, the gospel. They take a knife and they cut out his tongue so he can't preach the gospel. Then they cut his arms off so he can't show the love of God. Then they cut his legs off so he cannot move anymore. This pastor's cousin hears what happens. Goes to that same village with the same precious treasure. Same precious, life-changing, soul-saving message. And what he carries with him, when he speaks it in that love after his beloved family member died, was killed ruthlessly. These people deserve to go to jail for what they did. He lays down his life. He preaches the gospel. Greatest cost. This time. The Bible says, I shouldn't say the Bible says, but history says, the church is founded on the blood of the saints. The kingdom of God is founded on blood. It's founded on sacrifice. We are called to complete the sufferings of Christ. What I think that means is we are called to be willing to lay down our lives that he might exert his life and character and will through us. And whatever he says to us, that we will say yes, no matter what the cost. And I pray that I would have that passion and love and devotion to Jesus Christ. And I pray that you would too. Thank you. What do you appreciate about what you just heard? Price to pay. Go where he is going. To want what he heart has been challenged, our mind has been increased of the Holy Spirit in your life. More revelation from the Father. More understanding. More willingness to do whatever it takes to be the person. We do ministry, but before we do, I want some kids to come up here. A family and mom. Yeah, if they're there. They had our service on Sunday, and they blessed us by uh, sharing fell asleep. Okay, well, she was the one that started things out on Sunday. She's three years old. They quoted Philippians 1, and Juliana, she started, uh, she gave the first five verses. They didn't even know she was memorizing it, but she just heard the scripture. They're traveling and learning the word of God, and so she... Uh, 
spoke that out one day, as she did it on Sunday, I looked around and people had to dry their eyes because it was so moving to see them. Mom was and is my mentor. From Together with the overseers and deacons, Grace right for me to feel this way about you. Have you in my heart, for whether I am in chains or defending God's grace with me, God can testify. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, kids, and mom and dad. Bless you. Okay. Well, I'm already led to do ministry now. What I feel is something God really spoke was the high priesthood of Christ. And it hit me over. I want to receive ministry from the high priest. Then to pray for struggles. I also believe God wants to release an impartation. Now, uh, no comment. You go part way, you get the worst of both. First of the world and worst of the faith. You're, you're, you've got just enough religion to make you a sourpuss. And you're miserable to be around. But if you go radical and go all out and say, I'm not going back, then you get the joy. Well, let's just, let's just uh, open our hearts. You may just want to hold your hands out. You can sit if you want to. Let's make this a real time. Giving in in a fresh way. I know you've done it before. I've, every altar that we we make before the Lord is there. And as you feel led by the Spirit, please just repeat after me. And I just pray that it would be something where God, a lot of people do lip service to God, and that's worthless. Whom all things were created. By whom all things are sustained. Fullness of it. Father, I repent. Hurt me. And others. Selfishness. For worthy of all devotion. So that I can lay down my life. Live yours through me. I want my life to count. I don't want to squander it. I want to know your majesty. I want to know your greatness. I want a fire in my heart. I want to be transformed. I want your glory in me. I want to bring heaven into earth. I want to be an agent of change. I want to live for you alone. Help me. In Jesus, where our treasure is, there our heart will be also. And so the way that we set our heart on a pilgrimage is to stir up in our mind and to stir up in our emotions the truth of Christ as the treasure, that he is the pearl of great price. God wants us to magnify the Lord with one another, encouraging each other daily, even more so as we see the day approaching, that this is true, that Jesus Christ is the pearl of great price and he's worth selling it all for. And this is... This is something that it's not just a Tuesday night thing. We need to find ways it's said about David all throughout 1 Samuel and the Psalms and 2 Samuel is that David, when encountering difficulty, found ways to strengthen himself in the Lord. And whether it's worship or prayer or calling up a brother and you know listening to preaching, the purpose of it is we want to set Jesus as the treasure in our lives. 
And he is most, John Piper says it really well, God is most glorified in us when we're most satisfied in him. The world sees that Jesus is treasured by a people when they say, I'll give up anything for him. And the truth is, even as Bob said, suffering is one of those ways. And now we don't need to pursue it. We just need to walk in obedience to him and he'll lead us in that road. But the beauty of it is we can have joy in it. Because Christ is going to be glorified. So the prayer I want to pray right now, and then I want to encourage us, unless Bob has something more to put up into small groups. And here's what I want to pray. I want to pray that God would open our eyes even more. Because Bob, through preaching the word, what it's doing is it's opening your eyes and it's renewing your mind that this is true. That Jesus really is to be treasured above everything. That he is really more valuable than anything or anyone all the time, everywhere. And that's the vision that the Bible holds out, is that Jesus Christ in all things would be preeminent. And, and it only happens by the Spirit. That's Jesus' prayer in John 17, that the love which with the Father has for the Son would be in you. And he wants to put it in us, and it's as simple as asking. And so, Father, even right now, God, I ask for vision. Without a vision, without prophetic revelation, we cast off restraint. God, give us of all-consuming vision for the glory of Jesus. God, that we might treasure him for who he is, that he is more worthy and valuable and to be prized above anything or anyone. And God, we ask for grace tonight. God, that the lies that we've bought, that Jesus somehow isn't worth everything, Lord, we just cast them down before you. Jesus, we just declare by you and through you and to you are all things. God, we thank you for this word that stirred a fresh vision, that allowed us to magnify and to see Christ for who he is, the eternal word that became flesh and dwelt among us. And so, God, as we go into this time of prayer, I ask, God, that you would continue to open eyes. Open eyes. God, release vision. Release vision. The pure in heart get to see God. Father, purify our hearts by your blood, that we might see you, that we might be radically fixed upon Jesus in the days ahead. And it's in him, his name I pray. So let's just break up in groups, guys with guys, girls with girls, if possible, uh, two or three, four at the max, just where you are. And let's just pray for that, even what Bob preached, that Ephesians 1 prayer, that God might give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation, that the eyes of our understanding would be enlightened, that God would release light and vision. And there's nothing more There's nothing more enjoyable, guys. I'm, I, the 6.30 prayer time, what was on our heart was, God is convincing me in my own life that he really is more pleasurable and enjoyable than anything else. And I'm, I'm beginning to believe it by experience. It's great doctrine, but when you have experience in your life, that no, it's really true. When I obey Jesus and say no to that meal and fix my eyes on him and feast on the word, it's actually more pleasing. It's more pleasing to walk in the spirit than to indulge the flesh. It really is. And the devil is doing the same thing he did with Eve and saying, are you really sure? I think you're missing out. You are not missing out on anything. Amen. If you give it all to Jesus. I'm not telling you. I've tried what the world has to offer. It all falls short. It says his loving kindness is better than life. There's nothing that the world can offer you that can compare with the pleasures that are forevermore at his right hand. And so that's what God wants to release. It's, it's not just angry, discouraged, like Paul was saying, holiness. It's happy holiness. Jesus loved righteousness and hated wickedness. And because of that, it says, therefore, Hebrews 1, God anointed him with the oil of joy more than anyone else. He was the happiest person because he was walking in perfect holiness. 
And because he, he set his heart on obedience. And I'm not saying if you don't walk in obedience, it's, it's about the heart. It's about setting your heart for 100% obedience. And when you fall, you get back up, you receive forgiveness, and you say, I'm signing up again, God. I'm in. All of it. All of it. All of it. What you cling to, you lose. But what you give to him, you gain. So let's break up into groups and pray. If there's anyone that, uh, as you break up, you'd rather come up here and receive prayer. From the Last thing before we break up. Um, the thing, uh, for anybody who's going to one thing, you'll hear this message too. The thing that's very um, important to God is that we sustain this type that's right. of... That's um, right. We can last a season. You know, even your flesh can help you sustain several years of a season of devotion to God. But the reality is, is that, you know, life's longevity, even 70 years by the grace of God, to give 70 years to the Lord requires this type of a devotion. Because as you get older, as you get married, you know, Adriana and I have been married for two years, finding quiet time for the Lord isn't as easy as it was when I was single. Do this, it's very serious to God. And it says, Matthew 24, the two things that will withdraw the bride from her devotion to father to the to her, for the father son jesus as wickedness and laziness so that's what bob was talking about tonight that um you know it's the wickedness of the human heart is wicked above all things it says in jeremiah so if we are to sustain 30 40 years of pure simple devotion to jesus it requires his power in his holy spirit but it also requires us to make god just wants to pour that out to us just to daily commit ourselves to the first commandment just pour out our love into him, you know, as Mary did it, you know, at the feet. After a ton of prayer, then we'll have a fellowship.